All right, good morning again, everyone. I'm going to invite you, if you've not done so yet, find your Bibles. And this is one of those mornings where you're going to want to take some notes. So if you've not downloaded uh, off of our website or you don't have the app, uh, even if you have the app this morning, you may want to have just a piece of paper and a pen and take some notes. We're winding up our message series this morning. We're calling Uncharted Waters. Next weekend, we're going to do something uh, to honor mothers and kind of do a little encouragement and kind of deal with some issues and hopefully a creative way. And then we'll have another little short series after that that we don't know exactly what it's going to be, but we'll, we'll announce it ne- next weekend. Uh, but we're wrapping up Uncharted Waters. Now, we remind you that we have decided that Uncharted Waters... It's places and situations that we've never been before, places that we have never experienced before. Uh, We've all been there. Uh, A three-year-old Boeing 737 uh, takes off from Iran early in the morning, short flight to Ukraine. Uh, Very quickly in the air, engines burst into flame, all 167 and nine crew members gone. Uh, families just stand in a field, raising their hands up to heaven, going, why, why, why? Uh, torrential rains near Nairobi, Kenya. A uh, mountain gives way, and, and a mudslide goes into a town. Uh, 29 people dead, seven missing, probably never to be found. People still asking, why, why, why? A South Korean ferry boat in calm waters uh, capsizes. Over 304 people die, 250 of them were high school students on a field trip. Parents standing on the banks where they're looking for their children. Uh, Why? Uh, Closer to home. Uh, Over a span of 12 hours, a gunman posing as a police officer goes on a killing spree up in Canada, uh, where we have some of our worshipers even right now. Uh, And after that 12-hour period, uh, 22 over a lodge's wife just massacred. Uh, A 23rd died just this past week from injuries from that incident. And people still are asking, why? Why? Uh, Even closer to home, uh, the families of 74 Americans who lost their lives in the tornadoes just this past spring. A family member still standing in the rubble, right, on this Sunday morning, standing in the rubble, looking up to heaven, just asking, God, really, why? Are you kidding me? God, why? We didn't see this happen. It happened in the middle of the night. And today, uh, 7.6 billion people, seven continents, 195 countries taken to their knees by this microscopic virus. Concerns about physical health, emotional health, and an economic tsunami like we have never seen, and so many paralyzed in their tracks, just raising their hands toward heaven and crying out, why? I mean, there's so much bad stuff that happens in the world, and sometimes thinking people just stop and they ask the question, uh, why? Even closer to home, as one of your pastors and as your senior pastor, I know that hundreds of you, if not thousands now, uh, from the message I receive, uh, you've had an unwanted package of pain uh, delivered to your doorstep, a serious and a critical medical report 
uh, for yourself or for someone that you love. Uh, a child, a son or a daughter who's gone off the reservation. I mean, you did everything that you could, right? Everything that you could. And men, they're over here and they're over there and their behavior and their attitude and they're not even going to pass and go into college and you just go, really, God, we did everything. Why? Uh, some of you, you, you have had a, a good, solid economic income stream just dry up. And boy, you're just not even sure what to do now. And you just say, you know, why? And then there is that knock on the door uh, by the sheriff. Uh, there is the doctor who steps out and calls you on the phone, and you're just sitting out in the car waiting. Uh, there is that phone call in the middle of the night. Uh, your son, uh, your daughter, your spouse, they didn't make it. And you go, why? Why? We have all been punched in the gut by life. I mean, there's not a single person of us who's gathered here on this day in your homes or wherever you are that have not just been hit in the solar plexus by life. And you go, ah, so much so. You just cry out, why? But we who are followers of Jesus Christ have another question. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to know you're welcome to join us here. Uh, this is a place where you can struggle and wrestle with questions and, and with faith and all those sort of things. You're welcome here. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, you know what the next level question is. And that is why does a good and loving God allow so much suffering and pain? Why? I mean, why doesn't he step in and stop it? Uh, why does it sometimes feel like God is silent? Uh, why doesn't God intervene? Uh, we know that God is good. We know that God could. Why couldn't God do something about this stuff that we're going through? Uh, that is the big question. I mean, that is the big question that so many of us find ourselves asking. A CNN reporter uh, had the privilege of sitting down with Billy Graham, this great man of God, and asking him the big question. And I kind of picture my mind while, while this is going on. Everybody around the world, oh, Billy Graham's going to answer the question, right? He's going to step in. We're going to put it on the screen here. Uh, here is what he said. Maybe some of you heard this. He said, to my knowledge, uh, the question you are asking has never been answered after 50 years of thought and prayer, I have not been able to solve this riddle even to my own satisfaction. Hmm. But even if a spiritual giant like Billy Graham uh, really can't satisfactorily answer the question, it doesn't mean that it's not wise uh, for people like you and me to give prayerful thought uh, to this issue. And somehow put some of the puzzle pieces together because it is inevitable, if not yet, everyone here will find himself in some kind of uncharted water where there is a tsunami that knocks you after, off your feet. And hopefully we have just some sort of guidelines on how we begin to push through something like this. So I want to begin by taking you back to the caveman days. Yeah, all the way back to cavemen when I was in seminary and I was working on my Master of Divinity degree. 
as before a class with Dr. David Gowling's in systematic theology, and one of my peers says, hey, prof, before the class ever begins, hey, prof, uh, can, can, I need to have a question here. Uh, can you tell me how can we account for all of the pain and suffering that's going on in the world, there's so much, and why doesn't God step in and do something about it? He says, well, that's not our topic for the day. That's not why we're here. I'll give you a Cliff Notes version. If you want to know more, I'll, I'll be happy to visit with you after class. But here's the short version. Uh, God took a huge risk uh, when he entrusted to his creation, uh, man and woman, this humanity, this thing called free will. And free will is the capacity for autonomous decision-making. And God knew free, real, real, really that the odds were that human beings would abuse this gift and that they would make some terrible, some horrible decisions. And God knew, kind of weighed the circumstances, that the opposite would be worse, the alternative was worse. And the alternative was that God would connect strings to our mind and to our heart and to our hands and to our feet, and he would make us like these little marionettes these little puppets that just dutifully danced to every tug of his whim. But see, but God understood something, that if God reduced you and me to just moving at every little tug of whatever he wants in our life, uh, that we would do so uh, with no authenticity, uh, with no passion. Uh, we would have no sense of responsibility for life, no sense of love. So God weighed all the options and took a risk. He gave us free will. And the rest is history. <laughs> but that did not satisfy my, my peer friend. He said, hold it, hold it, hold it before you go on, Pastor. I get that. I get that's why the introduction, right, the introduction of suffering and all this pain in the world. But that doesn't answer my follow-up question. Why doesn't God step in and do something about it now? He said, well, okay, if you were to come to class and with the intention of hitting me in the face with your fist, and as soon as your fist got two inches from my nose, God stopped it, uh, that would be the end of free will. And you and I would become puppets, you would become a puppet, and that is not how God orchestrated the world to function, to operate. Now, that's a pretty good place for us to start. But it doesn't fully answer the question of why does a good and loving God allow so much pain and suffering in the world? Why do we experience so much stuff like we're doing right now with this COVID-19 and all the ripples effects of it? And some of you have some other stuff going on. Uh, I, I want to share with you some things uh, that I've been wrestling with since last July. Uh, when my son's brother-in-law, my daughter-in-law's brother, Clinton Tebbs, uh, died. Uh, I really intended uh, to share this with you pretty soon after that, but not too long after that, uh, my son, James, his, one of his friends and groomsmen he was in college with, he died tragically. Then I was going to share with some of this at the 1st of January, but then our own little raven died. And I will tell you, it was just so emotional uh, that I didn't think that I could deliver it or share it and wasn't sure if you were ready to receive it. Uh, so I'm going to share, I think finally now's the time on the end of this COVID-19 uncharted water. And this is very personal. 
I'm just going to share with you some things that God has taught me in how I process when stuff happens, when God delivers or somehow life delivers, not God, but life delivers an unwanted package of pain into my life or the life of someone I love. Uh, I have four questions that I work through and process. So this is where you might want to take some notes. I'm going to give you work through these things, four questions, and then four lifelines will kind of help us navigate uncharted water, un unwanted package of pain. And here's the first question I have to ask myself. Did I cause the pain? Uh, maybe, maybe it's not that I need to raise my hand toward heaven and say, God, 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 why did you do this? It could be that I myself am the cause of why that has come into my life. I got to ask myself. Uh, when I was a sophomore in college, I found myself on the table in a doctor's office, and the doctor was giving me some bad news. He said, hey, Rick, uh, this is going to be painful. Uh, since you didn't want surgery, since you didn't come in earlier, and since you don't want a pen in your finger, uh, we're going to have to re-break it in several places. And when I get finished with this, I'm going to tell you, man, this is going to hurt like you know what. And when I get finished, I'll put a splint on it, and you're probably going to miss uh, the spring baseball season. And I will tell you, it's probably your finger may never be ever straight again. Now, when I got that bad news, and I think you might agree, that's pretty bad news for a young guy in college. That was a pretty bad news. I didn't uh, lift my head toward heaven and say, God, why? Because I knew why. Uh, I had hurt this finger. I had broken this finger in a football game several months before, uh, several games before, and I knew it was broken. And I knew if I went to the doctor uh, that I would be sidelined for the rest of the season. And I didn't want that to happen. So I just kind of pushed through and played through until the last game of the last quarter of the year. And, man, I got hit at the right place on this finger. And, oh, it was like a shock wave of pain went through my nervous system. I almost blacked out. And I found myself now on this table in, in, in this doctor's office in this very painful situation with this news. I knew it wasn't God. It was a decision that I had made, right? It was my decision to power through, to prove that I was tough, to prove that I was cool, that put me in this situation of receiving that bad news. And if you look closely, you can see that finger is not straight, and it never will be. And I am the cause of that, my choice, my decision, not God. I, in a hospice house, invited to come by a man in this church. Uh, they were about to give him the medication where he becomes very sedate. Uh, he had been suffering and struggling uh, with esophageal cancer, uh, severe suffering. And so I had known him for a while. I go to visit with him. We're sitting here chat, uh, chatting. Also note that he had been smoking three packs of cigarettes for over 40 years. And he asked me this question. He says, Rick, you're my pastor. Tell me, why is God doing this to me? <laughs> Whew. Okay. What, what, what would you have said to him? I think you could probably imagine. It was a very complicated and a very sensitive conversation. I'm just saying 
that when you find yourself experiencing sometimes an unwanted package of, uh, package of pain in your life, and your first reaction is to raise your hand toward God and say, why? I would urge you to maybe stop, take a deep breath, call a timeout, do an inventory of your life objectively, and say, you know what, God? Huh. I think I brought this on. And if that is true, just own responsibility for it. Uh, make amends to God, to anybody else around you. Ask for God's help, and he will give you the help, okay? So that's the first question I ask. Here's the second question that I ask. Is this pain the result of another person's depravity? Hey, it may not be that, hey, God didn't bring it. You know, maybe that I didn't bring it, but another person brought this pain and suffering into my life. Uh, I go back to when I was eight years of age, summer camp. I was going to be at summer camp for eight days, Glen Rose United Methodist Camp right over here, not too far. And my dad had given me a crisp $5 bill for eight, for eight days to get me to the canteen, and I was saving it for a special occasion. And came to the third day, that special occasion came. Uh, because I, I'd met this little girl, and she had finally agreed to meet me at the pond over there at Glen Rose, a United Methodist Church camp right over there. So if you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about. And to share a popsicle. And I was buying the popsicle. Yes, I know. I started young. It was a date. And so I go to my cabin to go find my $5 bill, and I open up my suitcase, and I go to my secret compartment where I put that crisp $5 bill, and it wasn't there. I mean, I started tearing my suitcase up, looking everywhere for it, and I couldn't find it. And finally, I came to the conclusion that one of my cabin mates had ripped me off. And I hate to admit this, but remember, I was only eight. I started bawling. I was just standing. I don't know if I was bawling because uh, the guy ripped me off or I was going to let the girl down that I was going to have the popsicle with. I don't know, but I just started bawling. And so I go to the camp office. I say, I need to call my dad. And so I call my dad. Now, all of you young people you need to realize back in the caveman day, uh, there was no cell phone. I had to call collect. You know what collect means? That means my dad had to accept the call and pay for the call. So I get my dad on the phone. He accepts it. And I tell him what happens, and this is what he says. He says, listen, Ricky, uh, I'm sorry that happened to you, uh, but you need to know this will not be the last time someone tries to rip you off. Uh, this is just the world we live in. People do bad stuff. You got to get used to it. You got to toughen up. Now, listen, I got a call on another line, and besides, this call is going to cost more than $5. I got to go. And he was gone. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> I think this is before my dad took his counseling class in empathy or something like that. So I said, okay. But, but the point is, uh, there's going to come a point in your life that we all need to understand. That somebody in or around your life is going to exercise their free will, and they're going to make a bad decision. And that bad decision is going to bring, they don't ask your permission, you don't know anything about it. But that bad decision is going to deliver an incredible pain into your life. A mom and dad, uh, they chose to get divorced. You had nothing to do with it. But you experienced the consequences of their decision. Uh, your mom drinks too much. Uh, your dad is so full of anger, short fuse. He's just exploding and cussing and yelling sometimes, just overwhelming so. Uh, your brother molests you. 
uh, your crazy uncle, you don't know what he's going to do, right? I mean, he could do anything, right, when the family gathers. But the point is, uh, there's going to come a point in time, like I did when I was eight years of age, you've got to learn that we live in a fallen world. And God has given us the gift of free will. And sometimes when some unwanted package of pain comes to your life, it doesn't have a return address of heaven. The return address is of a human being that you know very well. And they just made a bad decision. And that brought just incredible pain. But it wasn't God know why involved? That's the second question. Here's the third question. Is this pain the result of a natural calamity? Is this pain the result of a natural calamity? In Genesis chapter 3, uh, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, uh, not only was sin introduced into the world, but the consequences of sin introduced that even tainted uh, the entire creation, the entire cosmos was tainted by it. Uh, go read it sometime. Genesis chapter 3. It talks about thorns and thistles coming into the ground, where the ground becomes uncooperative, a reluctantly yielding fruit. Now, most theologians, most scholarly theologians, uh, they believe that when God created the universe, that God created these natural laws, laws like gravity and friction, like high tide and low tide, high and low pressure systems. And that when God created the world and the entire universe, he put these laws into effect to govern the daily ordering of how the universe, particularly the created earth, functions. And God is not uh, kind of micromanaging every single day how the, the, the laws he put into place do that. Now, there are places in Scripture where you read uh, where God provides the rain or God withheld the rain. But those are the exception. For the most part, uh, most theologians agree that God has created the universe, that a fallen universe that comes into collision uh, with these natural laws that God has made. So... Uh, this young, beautiful bride has scheduled an outdoor wedding in May, and it rains. And she comes up to me, her pastor's presiding, say, Pastor, can you please tell me why did God send the rain and ruin my wedding plans? And with all of the kindness and patience I can muster, I say, well... We do live in central Texas, you know, where a thunderstorm can pop up in April or May at a moment's notice. If you wanted a guarantee that your wedding would be rain-free, you could have taken all of your wedding party to Atacama Desert in northern Chile where there hasn't had been an ounce of rain for years. Uh, that's my mercy gift kind of coming through in that moment uh, with that young brother. I'm watching the news, right? And there's this flood that's happened. And they're just talking, this is a flow river that floods every three years. And a family has a house just 10 foot from the river, right? I mean, just right next on the banks of the river. And they're going, no, I just don't understand why God keeps sending the rain and flooding out our house. And I'm just thinking in my head, hey, listen, man, if you wanted to have a house where you never had, go build it in the Mojave Desert where there's never been a flood ever in the recorded history of humanity, okay? Hey. 
hey, that's my mercy gift to give. Hey, newsflash, if you who live right here in the Texas area, if you're tired of thunderstorms popping up in the middle of the night and, and storm sirens going off, or you get tired of the 100-degree heat day after day in the summer, or ice storms in the winter, uh, move to San Diego. Hey, better yet, move to Aruba. Hey, can I get a motion? All on the floor, all in favor. Let's all move to Aruba. Right? We can do church anywhere from there. All, the point is, hey, listen, the point is, uh, don't blame God. <laughs> you know, when some sort of natural calamity happens, because we have this, this, these laws that God has put into place and they collide with a fallen universe and some of the decisions that we make, it just kind of sets it up for pain and struggling. Um, that's just the world in, in which we live. And here's the fourth and final question, and perhaps the most difficult. Is this pain a special delivery from the evil one himself? I mean, is this a FedEx passage? I mean, straight from hell into my life. Now, I don't know if you believe in the presence of and the personality and the power of evil. Uh, but I know that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, did. The person we say we followed him. In fact, he squared off against the evil one in the desert right before he began his teaching ministry. Uh, he tells us over in John 10, verse 10. We'll put it up on the screen. He says, the thief, that is the evil one, comes to steal. He comes to kill. He comes to destroy. He is on a Dark, dark mission. Do not be naive. 1 Peter 5, 8 comes like this. It says the devil, that is the evil one, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone. Uh, what does it say? To nibble on? Uh, to take a little bite of? It says no, to devour. It says to ingest, to digest, and to ravage. Now, I don't mind telling you, uh, I've taken a little ridicule in my life over the years from different people, people in this church, different pastors, uh, for believing in the personification or the incarnation of this thing called evil. Uh, but I believe it, uh, not just because it's in the Bible, uh, not just because Jesus believed it. In large part, I believe it because I have no other explanation apart from the presence of evil or why people do what they do to each other. Can someone please explain to me how two people who say they're followers of Jesus and are practicing the teachings of Jesus can have a conflict that they can't reconcile and stay together as husband and wife? Can you tell me rationally how that can happen when they know what this book says, how they cannot figure it out to make it work other than the presence of an evil one. Tell me. Uh, give me some rational explanation other than evil. Apart from evil, uh, how could anyone harm a child? Uh, how, how could anyone uh, sexually molest a child? Uh, apart from the presence of evil, explain to me rationally child pornography. Explain to me sex trafficking of children. Uh, please give me an answer that's rational, that makes sense as to why someone would gather up little boys and girls, put them in cars and trucks and, and railroad things, and transport them long distance and sell them for $10 a head to evil men who are going to do evil things. Uh, please explain that to me. 
Could you please? Uh, could you please explain to me, except for the part of, of evil, what gave Hitler the idea that it was okay uh, to kill over six million Jews? And what put 10,000 Nazis to make it, the, that it was okay to carry out the instruction other than the presence and the work of evil? Uh, 2020 is the 75th anniversary of the liberation of some of those folks who got out of the ovens uh, alive. It's kind of miraculous that many of them did. And if you ever go do a little study of this, uh, you're going you're gonna to believe in the presence of evil because those ovens, uh, those concentration camps, they look like our manufacturing facilities. They look like automotive plants like we have here today. I mean, they were intentional. They had uh, railroad tracks, and they had docks to move everything along. Uh, the showers, uh, they were amazing showers. The only difference was instead of water coming out, gas came out. And the incinerators, I mean, they were very technically designed to go to a maximum heat very quick uh, to reduce them to ashes. Right? I mean, just, and then, then they had this ashes transport system of ashes out of there that is, man, just so exquisite. I mean, there were blueprints. Someone sat down around the table and drew up plans and had a strategy to kill over six million people. Explain to me, apart from evil, how can that be? Explain to me how Pol Pot, Cambodia, could have the idea of having a killing field of leaving three million people just out there discarded, just murdered and massacred. Tell me how. And closer to home, uh, please tell me. Who whispers in the ears of a politician, take the money, uh, take the car, compromise what you believe in to push this through? Win the election no matter what. Destroy that person. Destroy that family. Publicly just kind of humiliate them. Who other than the power of evil would cause any decent human being to do that? Please, even closer on, please explain to me. Uh, what causes you and me to go into social media and to embarrass someone, to humiliate someone, to throw someone under the bus uh, what? Can, can you explain that to me as to why? Can you, why? Uh, what causes anyone to hate? Can you explain to me a rational, anything rational, where you would say you hate someone just because they're conservative? You hate someone just because they're liberal? Can you explain to me the rationale for someone who says they're a follower of Jesus to hate someone because of the color of their skin? To hate someone because they're gay? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've got to understand to know that God is love. It is totally irrational to hate anyone. It is the power and the presence of evil itself. And so, I don't know where you are, but i got to tell you, um, I believe in the presence and the power and the personification of an evil force that seeks to devour and create destruction in you and me and divide us. And uh, sometimes, i got to tell you, I'm embarrassed uh, when I get sucked into the evil one's schemes. I'm embarrassed uh, on how many times I have been suckered in and said things and done things that I wish I had not have done. 
See, Jesus said that the evil one is the father of lies. He lies. He makes something look good, and you and I eat it. And when we eat it, we get the worst case of food poisoning we've ever experienced. And it's devastating, not into us, but the people around us. And that is why Peter said, listen, be sober-minded, be alert, all the lookout. He's prowling like a lion, looking for someone to devour, to steal, I mean, just to crush. So, these are my four questions, okay? And uh, when I have these, I go through these four questions, and something's happened, I'm going to want a package of paint. It kind of helps me give a framework on really kind of make sense a little bit about what's going on in my life. Now, I want to turn around third base, and I want to go to home plate as we wrap up this Uncharted Water message series, and we're going to go to the communion table. I'm going to give you four final lifelines for you to hang on to on an upbeat that you can hang on to when we find ourselves with an unwanted package of pain in our life. I don't care where it comes from. Uh, these are the four things that I go to uh, most of all. So I'm just sharing with you uh, what God has, has given to me. And here's the first one. Uh, God is never the author of evil. And I want you to underline never, bold, never, N-E-V-R. God can't bank on it. God can never, ever be the author of evil. Uh, the scripture tells us in 1 John, and John 1, 4 and 5, that in him, Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of men. In him, there is no darkness. There is no way, never, if evil comes into your life. You have to say, why God? Because God is not the author of it. That's lifeline number one. Uh, lifeline number two, uh, God will always limit the amount of evil that comes my way. God will always limit the amount to what I can endure with God's help. That is, with God's help. Uh, listen to this verse from Isaiah chapter 43. If you have not yet memorized this, I hope you have. It's verse 2. It's underlined in my Bible so many times. Uh, here it comes. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Uh, I don't mind telling you uh, that ever since... Uh, Clinton died, and then when Ryan died, and then when Raven died, and a whole lot of others in between. I mean, there were a whole, a whole lots of others. I don't want to diminish any of those, but I had these deep personal relationships with these three. Uh, I held on to this lifeline until my fingers were bleeding. Uh, there were times I was up early, and Dallas wasn't up yet, and nobody else was, but I was just holding on to this because, you see, there are some, there are some stars, there are some uncharted waters where you, you just feel like you're going to drown. Uh, uh, there are some times you just feel like it's going to sweep you away, and you can never get back to reality again, or sometimes I feel like the fire is burning so intense it's going to consume you. But it's in those moments that you just hang on to, you know, that God will not give me more than I can endure with his help. And you just learn that then at that time. Uh, sometimes I like to go over to uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, when the apostle Paul was right pushed to the very edge. I mean, he was pushed to the edge of what he could endure. He said, uh, God said to him, hey, Paul, uh, my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. Uh, so sometimes uh, when I find myself struggling with a package of pain and I don't know what to do with it, 
Uh, I'll do what alcoholics do. And here's what alcoholics will do. Uh, some of the recovering alcoholics or recovering addicts in our church, some of the healthiest people in this church. That's why I, I kind of watch them and try to model what they do. If you go ask one of them, tell me, uh, are you going to be sober for the rest of your life? They'll say no. They'll say, no, my goal is to be sober for the rest of today. And sometimes they'll say, I'm just going to try to be sober until noon. And then sometimes like, God, could you just please give me enough grace to be sober till dinner time? And God, could you please then, God, can you give me just enough grace to be sober until bedtime? And then they get up and they start over. And sometimes, sometimes I have found, I say, God, can you just give me enough grace? And it so hurts so bad. It's so dark and so difficult, God. Can you just give me enough grace to get to noon? God, can you give me just enough grace to get to dinner time? God, can you give me just enough grace to go to bed? And God, not even enough to, but to sleep, God. Enough grace to go to sleep. And when I wake up, God, will you start again, God? Because I know, God, your grace is sufficient. And sometimes uh, God's grace comes in an unsurprising way, surprising ways, very miraculous ways. Uh, some God, sometimes God will tap you on the shoulder, you on the shoulder. And God will say, hey, listen, I want, you to, I want you to call Sue. I want you to call John. Call Bill. Call Rick. Call Tim. Call, call Mary. Uh, call them. Uh, they got a really tough time right now. And I want you to just text them. Text them and let them know. God's going to say, let them know that my grace is going to be sufficient. Call them and tell them you're going to come mow the yard. Uh, call them and tell them that you're going to keep their kids just for a while so they can survive. Uh, even there in the house, you're going to do that. Uh, but just call them and tell them, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to pray with you. I'm not going to leave your side. I'm with you in this. Uh, you, all you need to know is uh, that's somehow how God's grace comes. So listen, church family, if God taps you on the shoulder and he tells you to call someone and he tells you to text someone, he tells you to write them a letter, he tells you to knock on their door, you do it. Because you may be just the grace that they need to know that God's grace is sufficient and they can get through it. Uh, that's why our small groups are so important. If you're not in a small group, you discovered right now how you're just out there flailing the wind by yourself. You can't come to worship and see people, and you're just out there on your own. But when you're in a small group, this is why this is so important. You have people that will check on you and care for you, and you will experience God's grace through them. Please, if you're not in a small group, uh, let us know. Find a way to be a part of something, okay? Uh, and here's the third one. i got to move quickly. I see the time. Uh, God's presence is never more real. This is number three. God's presence is never more real than in a storm of uncharted water. Uh, church, I know this to be a fact, uh, that sometimes when it's the darkest, uh, when it's the most painful, God's presence is never more real. Over here in Psalm 43, uh, I mean, I have gone to this verse so many times in the past few weeks here, and I know it's true. This is what it says, verse 18, Psalm 43, uh, Psalm 34, excuse me, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who were crushed in spirit. I mean, when you were broken hard, he is so near. Uh, maybe some of you, if you're like me, uh, maybe you'd be embarrassed about your prayer life. Uh, that your prayer life, you look at your last few prayers of your life, you would go, man, God, please protect me. Uh, God, prevent this from happening. Uh, God, please cover my family. Don't let anything bad, because God, if it does, I just don't know if I can handle it. But church, I want you to hear what the scripture just said. That he is close to the broken 
hearted. And I have found in my life that when I find myself in the deepest valley, when I find myself knocked down, almost knocked out, when there is no one or nothing to hold on to, that when I grab hold and hold on of God, when I grabbed hold of him, he is so close and he is able and he was faithful and he will do what he says he is going to do. And his presence is so near. Uh, in my prayer life, I have three, three different postures for prayer. Uh, my normal prayer life is just sitting in my chair when things are, I pray for you, I pray for our church, I pray for our nation, I pray for things. Then I have this prayer life, this posture right here. When things get really serious, I go to this spot right here, and I'll just pray, God, God, do this, do that. My God, oh, my God, this world is so crazy. God, help. But man, when it's terrible, I, I reserve one prayer position, and I don't use it very often. But I will just lay down on the floor, and I will stretch out my hands before me, and I'll say, God, I got nothing. I got nothing, God. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. It hurts so bad, God. I got nothing. And I'll just lay there. And I will tell you, when I find myself in that position, so many times I've just felt the presence of God just speak to me and say, you know, Rick, I'm with you, man. I am so near you can touch me. I got this. Just get up and go to work. Get up and take care of your family and love your friends and do your workouts and just do what you got to do. I got you. God is never more near when you find yourself in a place. And some of you know this is true. And if that is you, if you, if you would, if you can testify to others that are worshiping this morning, just say true, just true for me. Just, just agree, say true for me. That's been your experience. Encourage some people. Would you do that? And here's the last one. Here's the very last lifeline. Then we're going to go to the table, have communion here in just a moment. It says, God will eventually weave my pain into a fabric of blessing. God will eventually uh, weave my pain into a fabric of a blessing. Now, I saved the last uh, Bible verse for last. Uh, some of you don't, are not going to like this verse because you're right here in the middle of something right now. Here it is. Here it is. Verse eight, chapter, verse, verse, chapter 8, verse 35 of Romans. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. We know that in all things, God works for the good. In all things. So church, I want you to get this. I want you to get this. Even when I'm experiencing a package of pain caused by something that I have done, even when it's a pain in my life invoked by somebody else, even when the natural calamities of this world has delivered this into my life and even when it's something from the evil one himself God can take all of that and weave it into a fabric of blessing for you and through you that you and we can experience victory through even this.
weapon may be formed that it won't prosper when the darkness falls it won't prevail cause the God I serve knows only how to triumph my God will never fail my God will never fail I'm gonna see a victory I'm gonna see a victory for the battle belongs to you Lord I'm gonna see a victory I'm gonna see a victory for the battle belongs to you There's power. There's power in the mighty name of Jesus. Every war he wages, he will win. And I'm not backing down from any giant. Because I know how this story ends. Come on, if you know that this morning, declare it. As you're getting your communion elements together, uh, I would like to speak just a moment to those of you who have had an unwanted package of pain uh, delivered to your door. And uh, I'd like for you to stop, please, just for a moment. And I would like for you to look me directly in the eyes. And I'm just imagining, I can see some of you right now. And I want you to hear this. is never the author of the evil and the pain that's coming to your life. You can just take it off the books. Just take it off the table. It's not an option. God loves you. He cares for you. And God is going to limit the pain uh, that you experience. It's not going to be beyond your capacity to endure when you lean upon Him, when God knows you. And just when you get to the point, you go, God, I can't take it anymore. God, there's no more. I promise you, He will show up. He will. I want you to count on that. Don't give up hope. He will. 
And if some of you are going to find out with that prayer posture, if you ever lay down out flat and you just pray, God, I got nothing. I just got nothing. I'm just, I'm just so tired of this. It's hurting so bad. God, I got nothing. Now, the scripture is true. He is near uh, to those that are brokenhearted, that are crushed. Well, that is why some older Christ followers, uh, when they sing, Great is thy faithfulness, they sing, Oh, great is thy faithfulness. Oh, God, my Father, the tears just coming down their eyes because they know it's true. And I know you don't want to hear this, some of you. I never like to hear this when I'm in the middle of something like this. God is going to take what you're experiencing right now. He can. He is. He will. And he's going to turn it into a victory. A fabric of blessing. Through you. To people all over the world. He can. That's what he did. At the table, Jesus said, this is my body. Broken for you. He said, I'm going to take what the enemy meant for evil and I'm going to turn it into good. He took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant spilled in my, my blood, spilled upon the ground for the forgiveness of your sins, for the salvation of the world. And he said, whenever you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you remember me and what I've done at this table for what I did on the cross and what I did at the empty tomb. So, God, we thank you for uh, this bread and this juice, for this sacred meal, this sacred supper, which reminds us, God, that you can take the most vile, ugly, dark times in the world, God, the crucifixion of Jesus, and you turned it into a blessing of good for all of us, and we thank you for that, God. So in our homes and wherever we're gathered, in our workplaces, God, as we eat this bread and drink this juice, remind us of who you are of your goodness and your love. Amen. So right there in your home, if you would, uh, just share uh, the bread, the cracker, the wafer, the little Cheeto, whatever it is, the chip, whatever you have, just share that and just say, the body of Christ broken for you. The body of Christ broken for you. Look into the eyes of your family. If you're single, if you're single, hey, just listen for me right now the body of Christ broken for you and you just partake right there you're not alone God is with you we're with you after you've done that I encourage you to take the cup whatever the drink you have share it with the people in your family and say the love of God poured out for you the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's many things you can say. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ poured out for you. If you're single, you're at home by yourself, please hear me. The love of God poured out for you. Take and drink. You're not alone. God is with you. Your church is with you. God, we thank you again for this table. 
God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your strength, God. And God, we are grateful that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though the world will throw stuff against us, even though people in our life will make awful decisions, God, that brings pain and suffering into our lives, God, even when bad stuff happens in the world, God, we know, we trust, and we believe that you can take and you will take what the enemy meant for evil, and you will turn it into good. Amen, amen, amen. Let's sing it like we believe it, church. the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good you turn it for good you take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good oh you turn it for good come on believe that in your heart this morning sing you take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good Oh, you turn it for good, turning it around, yeah. You take what the enemy meant for evil, and you turn it for good. Oh, you turn it for good. All our pain, all our hurt, you take. You take what the enemy meant for evil, and you turn it for good. You turn it. Church family, I hadn't told you this in a while. I need to tell you before we start our purpose statement. Said, man, I love you. And I'm so proud of you, this body of Christ called Pathway Church. And I know you're all still wondering, hey, when are we going to come back? When are we come back to the building? Uh, we're probably, it's gonna, probably going to be a while. 
Uh, we're not going to come back. Right now we're lean. We're not coming back until everybody can come without any limitations and saying, no, you can't come too many. Uh, that's not who we are. It's whosoever will may come, right? A room for everyone. So stay tuned. Hang in there. That, that day will come. And whether you're long time or short time or first time, uh, we like to state our purpose statement. We've had communion. And our purpose statement kind of reminds us who we are. It has nothing to do with the building. The building's a tool. Our new worship center is just going to be a tool like this place here. Uh, but the purpose is what we do as a people. So it's going to be on the screen. Can we say it together, regardless of where you are in the world, let's say it together. The purpose of Pathway Church is to glorify God and share the love and grace of Jesus Christ with as many people as we can. And how shall we fulfill this purpose? Say it with me, church. By ministering to spiritual, emotional, and physical needs. By providing Christian relationships in the family of God. By providing the challenge for individual and collective spiritual growth. That's who we are, and that's what we do. Let's go do it. We love you. See you next weekend. Bye.